We got more seats now. We can sit and uh, sit comfortably. And uh, you would open your Bibles to the uh, book of Acts. Hey, here's what I want to make sure you know. This is sort of confusing, but let's make it easy. Next Sunday at 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock, really early. I mean, that's really early, right? No, I'm kidding. 9 a.m., we're going to do the follow-up to Foundations of Faith. We've done Foundations of Faith, I think, 16 times or so. And now we're doing the next adult Sunday school class. We, Foundations of the Faith really has never been a uh, adult Sunday school class. But we've taken so many people through it. We want to go on to the next phase. And here's what it is. It's about uh, serving, uh, body life. Uh, how do you serve in the local church? What does it look like? What are the motivations? Why would we do it? And we're going to use this book as a jumping off point. You could actually read Ephesians 4, and that would be a good start. And then grab this book, and by 9 o'clock next Sunday morning, read two chapters. It'll take you about 10 minutes. Read two chapters of this book and come to the class at 9 a.m. in the kitchen. What? Oh, and if you're going to do the women's Bible study, then read the first two chapters. I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do today as I'm going to... Um, Give my announcements and, no, I'm kidding. I had a joke, but I better not do it. And uh, everybody, ch no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but anyway, we're just doing this. Uh, what a natural follow-up. What a perfect follow-up. How to serve in the church. What does it look like? Why would we do it? What, what, what does the scripture say about it? And I think if you read Ephesians 4, we actually have it up in the, uh, the sanctuary here. That'll give you a good start. And, you know, uh, last year I sort of made this book our outside reading for the year. This book. If you've never gotten this book, uh, ooh, that's an amazing book. But here's what I want to do. I'm proclaiming this book right here, our book for the year for Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh. So you're going to read the Bible and stay in the Bible, and then this book you're going to grab. Uh, one pastor named Damian Kyle from Calvary Chapel, Modesto, California said, make sure everybody in your congregation gets this book Watch them obey it, and watch the world turn upside down. And so this is just called The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey. Uh, we have a few around here, but uh, uh, you can get them online. If you want us to order them, maybe we could do that as well. So that book, okay? All right, all of that's out of the way, and uh, we're going to begin. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 1, and... Uh, I started last week by giving you this quote. I love this quote about um, Acts. I think it sums up the book of Acts. A really famous pastor by the name of Vance Havner has this quote. We will move this world. Man, is this so perfect for now? We will move this world not by criticism of it. Oh, come on. In the last four to six years... The Christian community has just been seen as a bunch of whiny babies screaming over Facebook about how they can't stand the other person's policies or we're being, come, come on. What about this? We will move this world not by criticism of it nor conformity to it, but by combustion within it. 
of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Wow. We're on mission. Our God is a God of mission. He actually was, or is, one God in three persons. Perfectly self-sufficient before the creation of the world. Didn't have any need to create or to have fellowship with humans, and yet made humans for fellowship. Wow, that's amazing. Knowing that they would fall. Rebel. So what did he do? He sent mission, his son, as a baby in a manger. That's Christmas. That's all about mission. God is a missional God, and he calls us in the Gospels. He calls us to live a missional life. He tells his followers as he ascends, and that's what we're dealing with now. If you turn even to like Luke 24, you could see it in several of the Gospels. Thus it is written, verse 46, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, we don't live close to Jerusalem, but you live in a home with people who may or may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, if, if everybody in your house is trusted in Christ, well, you work with people. You go there every day. That's your Jerusalem. But anyway, the mission is for the followers of Christ to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name to all nations beginning around you or at Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things. Behold, I send the promise. Mark it well. Luke 24, verse 49, of my Father upon you. I'm going to send this father, or promise of the Father, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to tarry in the city of Jerusalem. Listen, listen, listen. Until you are endued with power from on high, given power. Having power given to you. Can you imagine? You get the mission, like Tom Cruise or somebody in... Mission Impossible, and the thing blows up. But you, you get the mission from the Lord. You've been following for three and a half years. You get the mission. What are we going to do? Let's get out there and go. Come on. And he gives you the mission. I want you to preach in my name, repentance, remission of sins, right where you are. That's what I want you to do. And instead of saying, go, now, he says, wait. That's unusual, folks. God said, or Jesus said, wait. I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the promise of my Father upon you. And I want you to just wait there in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And at that moment, at that moment, think about it. 40 days after he's resurrected, think about it. He goes up into a cloud. And disappears. You're like, if you're a follower of Christ, you're like, what is going on? What? I thought he would say go. He said wait. I thought he would stick around a little longer. He left. Jesus said, do you know this in the book of John? Unless I go back to the Father, I can't send the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit can't come. 
So it's good that I go back. Remember he said this? And here it's playing out right in the book of Luke. Remember, Acts is just an extension of Luke. Dr. Luke, he was a physician. Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And we are now studying it. And we said there were a couple reasons why it's so important. Here's one of the reasons why it's important. If you picked up your Bible and you went from Luke and there was no Acts and you went to Romans, you'd go, what? How did it get from this little peewee little country on the Mediterranean Sea all the way over across the known world into Rome? How did that happen? Luke tells you. In one sense, the book of Acts is a story from Jerusalem to Rome. How the church got from Jerusalem to Rome, which then means it talks about how it got from Christianity came from uh, being um, uh, told and uh, shared with the Jewish people to the Gentiles. Now let's just define what are Jewish people and Gentiles. Jewish people are the Jewish people. And Gentiles are everybody else who are not Jewish. Raise your hand if you're Jewish. Raise your hand. Awesome. Okay, we have a couple. That's so great. God bless you. But most of us in here are Gentile. So now we, all of us, everybody in here, whether you raised your hand or you didn't raise your hand, this story impacts you. Because you're sitting in a church in little peewee, little West Elizabeth, Pennsylvania, and it all started because of here. You see it? In in some senses, the book of Acts is continuing. Because when you get to the end of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit doesn't go away. He still resides in us. And now we're called to continue our sharing and loving and preaching the gospel to our Jerusalems, to our Judeas, to our uh, Samarias. The circle just keeps getting bigger. And even unto the ends of the earth. And even you, you. Uh, You as a congregation here at Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh, you do an amazing job of supporting missional, gospel-centered organizations that do things right here in Pittsburgh. Like, you uh, support uh, this little pregnancy resource center right down here in Monongahela, New Life Options, Jerusalem, and we're helping them do their thing fighting the battle for life right here in the towns here up and down the river and not only just fighting for life but while they're doing that sharing the gospel and you you help another pregnancy resource center um, based here in Pittsburgh called the human coalition but what's funny about the human coalition it's not just here in Pittsburgh it goes a little farther out and a little farther out like this You have people here that are faithful every Monday night, every single Monday night. People call me sometimes and say, well, you know, it's uh, 20 degrees out and it's raining. You think the people will be down there on Monday night? And the answer is, don't call me anymore. Yes. It's 20 below. Will they be there? Yeah. It's raining. Will they be there? Yeah. It's 95 degrees. Will they be there? Yeah, just go. (laughs) Call Sarah, not me. (laughs) But the point I'm making is they're sharing the gospel right here in their little, not little, I guess, this town of Pittsburgh, the city of Pittsburgh, with those who are having a tough time. 
right? And off you go. And you, if you look down here on the board, there's some of them. We need to update them. There's this, I don't know if you know this, but there's this terrible refugee problem. Well, that's funny that we, we laugh about that, but because we're saying it's a terrible problem, and it is a problem, where these refugees from Syria have flooded into Lebanon above Israel. What's interesting about it, it's very tough to get the gospel into the uh, Syrian areas because they don't like to have the gospel there, but they come over into Lebanon where this ministry called Heart for Lebanon has established schools and churches and Bible studies and work programs, and you support them. In fact, Mark has taken a vision trip over to Lebanon and seen all the things of the refugees. And I think there's refugees from Iran and Iraq, so there's others as well. And there was a family here about six years ago, the Phillips. If you've never listened and heard about the Phillips, they have been ministering in the remotest part of Indonesia. And what's amazing about the Phillips is they went to this place, and there's a lot of amazing things, but one amazing thing they did is they they had no way to communicate, so the Phillips, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the people who live on this island, created their own language. Are you kidding me? They just made it. I mean, they worked with them for several years, and they finally came up with an alphabet and a language, and now they can share the gospel over in Indonesia. And you support them, and you help with that. And we could go on and on and on. We have friends sitting back here who are from Hungary and are missions, uh, missionaries over in Europe. Their ministry is called Love Europe, and they like to get gospel tracts into the hands of all the languages and all the countries of the people in Europe. And so what I'm telling you is, that's what a church is supposed to do. Start here and go boom, 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 boom. Get it? We're just continuing on what Luke is writing about, this thing The person and work of Christ through the Holy Spirit has brought the gospel from the Jewish people and to include the Gentile people. And you sitting here are a product of what we're reading. That's what I'm trying to get at in a roundabout way. (laughs) And one of the things that the book of Acts does for us in a tremendous way is teaches us how to live as a minority in this sense. Our beliefs, if you haven't noticed, are in the minority in the world right now. (laughs) Like, really in the minority. (laughs) In the culture of ideas, Christianity, you just just watch TV for a minute. And... uh, It's teaching us how to live in a culture that's antagonistic towards what we believe. And what's funny about it is us old-timers like me complain and sit at home and watch Fox News or MSNBC and complain and say, man, this world, this is terrible. But the early church was doing the same thing. (laughs) I mean, Nero was no picnic to deal with for the Christians. He persecuted them in Rome and did dastardly evil things to them. So they had to learn how to live in the culture of ideas as a minority. You get it? That's what the book of Acts is all about. 
How do you navigate life when you know the truth and it is the truth and it's the person of Jesus and you stand up and say you're a Christian and people just pile on and want to knock you out? In fact, in this book, they wanted to kill them. We're not there yet. And I say yet. So Acts is a continuation. Another way in which you can sum up the book of Acts is the first half, kind of, although there's a couple other players like Stephen and Philip. The first half of the book of Acts is about Peter, the apostle Peter and his ministry. And so he ministered in and around Jerusalem and Israel. The second half of the book of Acts is by, about a guy named, say it, Paul. Paul. The second half of the book of Acts is about Paul, and he, who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, like the strictest, legalist, highest socioeconomic order in, in, in uh, Judaism, member of Sanhedrin, ruling council of Israel, rich, powerful, a persecutor of Christians, a murderer of Christians, would put hits out on Christians stood and watched while they would be splattered by rocks, stonings. Here this one is walking to Syria and the rug comes out from under his life as Jesus speaks to him and says, Paul, why, why are you doing this? And Paul becomes a Christian and you know that this book, especially at the last half, tells us how Paul went around the ancient world and shared the gospel and uh, uh, had such an impact, and it impacts us here today. You're sitting here because the Lord used Paul. Amazing. It's amazing. So we're going to keep looking at it and see what the Lord can do for us. And as we think about how we impact our Jerusalem, boom, right here, West Elizabeth. And then... Monongahela or Elizabeth, McKees or McKeesport, sorry. I'm getting my McKees mixed up. And then on and on and on and on. All right, look, last time, this is where we stopped, verse 12. We'd seen the prologue to the book of Acts where Luke gives the account of a 40-day period in which Jesus appeared to several people, giving infallible proofs that he was resurrected. And then he comes, and I want you to see this. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Watch it. I read you Luke 24 for a purpose. But to wait for the promise of the Father. You need to know that there's a promise of the Father. What is the promise? That they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So you've heard from me, it says, for John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now I got to stop you right here. And I need to tell you and remind you that we believe there's three relationships the Holy Spirit can have with you as the believer. And we find the first one in John 14, 6. It says, he will be with you, that's one, and the Greek word there is para. It means paraclete. It means come alongside. It means 
put your arm around. And we believe that happens as the Holy Spirit draws you to Jesus. He'll be with you, John 14, 16, and 17. You can look it up. But then it says in that same verse, but then he will be in you. And the word there is E-N for our I-N. And that's when you become a believer. You, you trust Jesus for your salvation. He comes and indwells in your life. Yes. And oh, by the way, it happened to the apostles in John chapter 20, around verse 21 and 22, when Jesus breathed on the apostles and the Bible says the Holy Spirit entered them. They became indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You get it? There's two relationships of the Holy Spirit. And now we're coming to the third. These are the people who received the Holy Spirit by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit back in John 20. Everybody tracking with me. But there's one more relationship. He comes, Acts is after John 20. And he says here, you've heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Why would they ask that? They asked that because Jesus for all those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, it tells you up in verse 3, taught about the kingdom of God. And we said the kingdom of God is multifaceted. It can mean many different things. It can mean the spreading of the gospel because when the gospel comes into your heart, who reigns in your heart? Jesus. There's his kingdom. You're his kingdom in a sense. But it includes a lot of different facets, including the millennial kingdom that's coming in the future where Jesus will come back and rule and reign from Jerusalem with his saints. That's part of the kingdom. And at that time, he's going to push off and defeat his oppressors. They were looking forward to that. And apparently, that's sort of what they're asking. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that part right now. Watch what he says. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which, has fought, which the Father has put in his own authority. We're not talking about that part of the kingdom right now. But you shall receive power. That word is dunamis. Don't you want to have a dynamite life? Well, so do I. But here's the thing. You're going you're to receive power when the Holy Spirit, here comes the third word or phrase for the relationship that the Holy Spirit can have with a believer has come upon you has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we said that was the third relationship. And that phrase, come upon, is represented by a word that is epi, E-P-I. It's a coming upon ministry. I actually read you at the end of Luke 24, Jesus talks about this baptism of the Holy Spirit when he says you're going to be endued what a funny word. We don't use that much anymore. You're going to be infused. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Which means, listen, I know there's other people who believe differently, but we believe through these scriptures that I've just sent you that a, whole, a person can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and not have the overflowing life of the Spirit that Jesus talks about in John 7 when he was at the feast, the great feast, when he said torrents of living water will come out of you. There's a lot of people who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
but have never received the overflow of the Holy Spirit, or if you want to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, call it that. If you want to call it endued with power ministry, call it that. I don't care what you call it. But we need the power of the Lord, and here's what we need it for. He tells you right there in the verse to be witnesses. Now listen, I shouldn't say it this way, but maybe I will. I'm no dummy. I am sort of, but I know that there's people in this room from a faith tradition that is very, very conservative. In fact, right now, they're elbowing anybody who's here like, let's get out of here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But here's what's funny about this. We have people in here on the other side of that aisle who have done things in the name of the Holy Spirit that were wacky and wild. That's hard to say. In fact, let me take you to the North Star, the guiding chapter on the book about spiritual gifts, especially the one you don't want me to talk about, tongues. And let me take you to 1 Corinthians 14 and show you verse 40. Paul says, when speaking about spiritual gifts, Paul says this, not me, Paul says this, let all things be done decently in order. When I'm talking it to those two faith traditions, the very conservative, whatever tradition you came for, please don't talk about the Holy Spirit. They're afraid of the abuses, and rightfully so, by the way. They're very good at the end of the sentence, doing everything in order, neat and buttoned up. Now, the hyper-charismatic group that stands on this side of the aisle, who anything goes in church, well, watch this. They're very good at the first part of the sentence, let all things be done. We have one camp of when you talk about the Holy Spirit, let's do anything. Then you have the other camp that says, please don't talk about the Holy Spirit. I've seen all the abuses. It's weird, blah, 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 blah. But it's got to be something different because, or balanced because Paul says, don't just take one half of the scripture. What if, what if, what if there's a way to do all things, all things, decently and in order, in a peaceable way. And oh, by the way, I think there is. And if you go back to Acts chapter 1, I want you to see that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. How does the Holy Spirit come upon you? Well, I've told you this several times. You could look it up in the 11th chapter of Luke. And it's really complicated. Just ask. Just ask. You can read in there about Jesus giving a lesson about, well, if you asked for something, what would a good dad do? If you asked for, like, bread, would you get a stone? Or would you ask for this, would you get a... Scorpion, no, a good dad wouldn't do that. And that's all in the context of asking for the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's that conversation. You can look that up in Luke chapter 11. 
So you just ask, how does the Holy Spirit come upon you? Well, you wait on the Lord and ask. And you, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. If you want to fulfill the mission that God has called for you, he's given you power to do it. But in my opinion, and not just mine, lots of people's opinion, we have millions and millions of Christians that are running around trying to do what God has asked us to to do, excuse me, with no power. So now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up to heaven will come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven when he comes back with his saints in the second coming. This is how he'll arrive. Then, as we start, that was, oh my goodness, 35-minute introduction. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Remember, Luke 24 tells us they were a little farther back than that in a place called Bethany. If you read your Bible, which you do, I know you do, Where did Jesus ascend from? Bethany, not the Mount of Olives. It says it in Luke 24, but he was apparently coming back. He would, right, through the Mount of Olives. It's what he would do. And the writer here, Luke, wants to tell you it's a Sabbath day's journey. You know, the Jews could only walk so far on the Sabbath because if they walked a little farther than what they were required to walk, it would be counted as work. And you couldn't work on the Sabbath. Just by the way, time out, take a little rabbit trail. The Sabbath in the Bible is not Sunday, folks. The Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. You get it? It's funny, when you go to Israel and you're in Jerusalem, if you're in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, you're like, what is happening around here? There's nothing going on. This massive, busy city just shut down. That's because it's the Sabbath. They still practice that today. But here, it was a Sabbath day journey. So the writer is telling you that they could reach the Mount of Olives up to the top of Jerusalem or into the upper room by, by not violating the Sabbath's traditions that had risen up in the Jewish religion. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room, probably the same place where they were before Jesus uh, died and rose again, but maybe not. And here's why. Because later on here, we're going to learn there were 120 people there. So it was a big place. And when they had entered, went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer. Fascinating word there, prayer. It's a word that means God facing or God going forward. In other words, you're moving towards God when you speak to him. You're asking him. You're praying. You're praising God. You're moving towards God with respect and reverence. It's a praise. It's a worship. That's what prayer is. Prayer is a lot of things, but that's one of the things prayer is. It's just simply praising the Lord. You ever had a person come around, not that the Lord's like me or like you or anything like that. You ever had a person just come around and every time they come around, they just ask you for something? It's like a drag, isn't it? Now, the Lord doesn't reproach us in this way, but 
Here's what we do. Lord, I need this, 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 this today. If you take care of that, I'm going to be happy, and I know you're glad that I'm happy. So I'm asking you to do that. And if you don't do it today, I'm going to be sort of mad, so get it done. That's how we talk to the Lord. We don't say it that way, but that's sort of what we expect. Here, what this verse is saying is that these people all continued in the upper room with one accord. What does that mean? With a heart that was singular, desiring the Lord. It was a singular heart. They were all with one heart, one accord. By the way, that's the theme of Acts tells us six times that they were with one accord. And so here in prayer, they were devoted to prayer. Now I got to show you something. The environment in which the supernatural happens, supernatural being the Holy Spirit, God himself. What is the environment in which God works? Well, the first thing you should know is obedience. By the way, how do we show love to God? It's really sort of hard to show love to God. Like, like what do we do type of thing? Well, the Bible tells us if you want to show love to God, obey his commandments. What are his commandments? Love God, love others. Be a great lover of people. Be a great lover of people. 2 Corinthians 6.6, 6, we learned today in our class. One of the great characteristics of Paul who shared the gospel around the ancient world is he had, listen, not just love for people, he had sincere love for people. I think it's totally different. He listened to people. He cared for people. He took time for people. The great apostle Paul. So what is one of the environments in which the Lord is doing his work? He asks us for, it's obedience. You say, well, I don't see obedience, what you just read me. Yeah, you do. Because Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. And the next picture we get of, the, of these people, the followers of Christ, they're waiting in Jerusalem in the upper room. Just do it. There's a quality to our obedience. You understand? If you ask somebody to put the trash out on Tuesday night and they put it out on Wednesday morning, I mean, they did what you asked, kinda, but it doesn't get the job done. Get it? And here, they asked, he asked them, go get in Jerusalem and wait. And not many days from now, you're going to receive power. And the next picture we see, boom, they're doing it. I wish, I wish we would just do this. It would stop a lot of the counseling sessions. Uh, here, here's one. If you have something against your brother and you come into the church and you recognize it, put everything down, run out of the church and get it right with the brother. And then people come in and say, you know, I got this problem with, you know, Gertrude and I don't know what to do. Hmm, well, let me see. Put everything down, go call Gertrude Say you were wrong, you sinned against her and asked for her forgiveness. And then here comes the classic line. I can't do that. No, you, didn't, you, you can do that. It's just that you won't do that. And that's the big difference. Here, the apostles just said, oh, wait, we'll wait. And so here you are. They are waiting, and then they're people of prayer. They're respecting, praising, worshiping God. You see it in the upper room. That's how they filled their time. 
They not only were doing praises in their corporate prayer time, but they were asking for supplication. They needed things to, to, to exist. So God says, ask for things. And so they did. And then I want you to see something here. The last time we see Mary, the mother of Jesus in the Bible or in the book of Acts right here. And there she was, the Mary, mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Guys and gals, listen. Mary is the blessed one who bore the child of Jesus. But in her song, she said she needed him as a savior. And also, Mary didn't somehow ascend like Jesus ascend. That's blasphemy. And she didn't hang on any cross. Blasphemy. She's just a follower of his, a mother of his, but a follower of his. An important lady, a blessed lady, yes, she is. But she's not to be prayed to to gain favors for you. And it's clear here. She's just a follower of him. She recognizes who he is. She's his mom. Of course she's there. And you have all those ties, but she's a follower. And then this is interesting, his brothers. His brothers, his brothers are there. Now, if anybody had any reason to doubt who Jesus was, it would be the family, right? You know, poking people with pencils and, you know, saying you're getting pinched at night and mom and dad come in and you didn't really, you know all the things that you did with your siblings and probably worse, but anyway. (laughs) But here's the funny part about the brothers. In the book of John, and also in the book of Mark, John 7, Mark 3, we realize that the brothers didn't believe Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, until and after, look at this, the resurrection. Now they believe. They show up, they're in the upper room, they're waiting, They're, they're doing what he's commanded. These brothers who didn't believe in him, and he had brothers, by the way. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. I mean, they had brothers and sisters. We all know how that happened. So here you have brothers, James and Jude. They wrote books at the end of the Bible. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus. Why do I say half-brothers? Because they came from a mom, but they also came from the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in him till the resurrection. Here's why my point. You ready? Here's a point. I'm talking in circles, but you need this point, and so do I. You want to talk to people about the Lord? Start steering them to the fact that Jesus died, but didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. And he's alive now. It's different than any other religion. He's alive. And what, what, how does that impact people? See, if they come to know the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they come to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's where you continually share. Steer people to the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ. That's how people put their trust in him. All right. And in these days, Peter stood up in the midst uh, of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9, written by David, but looking forward to what Judas would do when he sold out Jesus. You can read that later. But the point being here is, Peter stands up. Remember, the first half of Acts is about Peter. Peter stands up 
And he says, men and brethren, there is scripture. I want you to know something. The early church and the people who went out and shared the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, they knew their Bible. (laughs) Here's Peter. What business would he have in his fishing business to know the scriptures? He wouldn't. He studied them. He learned them. He meditated on them. And he knew Psalm 41.9 that it concerned Judas who be came a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For, verse 17, he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field. In order to learn about this, you have to go over to Matthew 27. Go over to Matthew 27. It gives you, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Matthew 27. I've lost my place here. <laughs> Sorry, I, I get back. Oh, that's why. <laughs> yeah, here we go. It's verse three. Sorry about that. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, Matthew twenty-seven, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of sil- silver. Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Hey, we don't care how you're feeling guilty. What do we care? You take care of that. Then Judas threw down the pieces of silver. Look where they were in the temple. He threw it down. Boom. Threw down the pieces of silver, departed, and went, and look at this, hanged himself. Judas hanged himself, but the chief priest, this is important, took the silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. We can't put this in the temple treasury. This is blood money. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field. So there was this potter's field to bury strangers in. It was both a potter's field and a cemetery. And... Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled, watch this, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. You aren't going ooh and ah as you should be. But that was written about 700 years prior to this time. Jeremiah's written, and there's a prophecy saying the Messiah is going to be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold him out for these 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> I mean, ooh and ah, like a firework there. <laughs> this is incredible. And when you turn back to Acts chapter 2, you get a little bit of that, but you get the rest of the story there in Matthew 27. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man, verse 18, purchased the field. What do you mean he purchased a field? He didn't purchase a field. The Bible's wrong. It just says the leaders of the temple bought the field. Well, right, but I mean, they got the money from Judas, so the Bible's not wrong. He was the 
person who provided the money that they say they couldn't use to put in the temple, so they bought a field with it, with the wages of iniquity, and he fell headlong, and he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Oh, no, the Bible's wrong again. He hanged himself. Well, come on, folks. I mean, this isn't too hard to imagine. He was hanging up there, and he was a criminal. What happens in the hot sun and all that sort of thing? And whether the rope broke or as they were taking him down, something happened, and he was bloated and awful, and his skin was thin and all that. And when he fell headlong, his guts fell out, come pouring out. By the way, there's a really interesting play on words Because in Acts 2.17, go over there. Go over to Acts 2.17. There's a prophecy about what happens in Acts chapter 2. The prophecy was, and it shall come to pass. Joel 2.28. I guess it's not a play on words, but maybe. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Guess what that word pour out my spirit is? It's the same word. The guts ran out of Judas, but the Holy Spirit pours out his spirit. Same word. Hmm. It's a contrast. It's a way to contrast what happened here. So this is Judas, and the one thing, the reason I'm going through it so much is I want you to know it wasn't outside of God's plan. God had it covered. He knew this was going to happen. You don't have to feel like the wheels came off and Jesus was like sort of, no, God knew about Judas. It was prophesied, folks, 700 years prior. So he goes on and he's, excuse me, and he tells us that it was bought a field that he uh, calls or names in Aramaic. <clears throat> excuse me, Akodema, that is the field of blood. And we could go on for a month of Sundays in sermons about just this. Jesus, look at this. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Jesus died, and because of his death, because Judas turned him in, What was purchased back? A field. You ever heard that uh, parable about the treasure in a field? And what was in the field here that we know from the book of Acts? Pottery, or broken pottery parts that couldn't be used, and dead bodies. (laughs) Now let's talk about pottery. You know, in the book of Jeremiah, you like to say it in Sunday school or sing the song, he's the potter, I'm the clay. What do you do with pottery? You keep, you know what, you're making it, you're making it, you're making it, you got water and you're spinning the wheel and you go, you pick it up and you go, oh, wow. I really messed that up, but the Lord doesn't say that about us, but you get it, I really meant it. What, what does the potter do when there's, a, when there's a mistake? He takes it back to the wheel, watch, and he applies water again. What's one thing that the water is uh, a sign of in the Bible? The word. He applies the word, the water of the word. (laughs) Makes it again, makes it again. What happens to the potter is when he uh, has fired the pottery without being able to go back and apply the water. 
if there's still imperfections in it after that, oh no, and he tosses it out the window and it goes in the field. <laughs> there's no use for that clay or that pottery. So what was in the field? Crackpots, you got it. And from where I'm standing, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but look, what were, in the, what were in the field? Crack pots and dead bodies. And we know that Jesus bought the field because he loved what was in the field, in the world. You and me, crack pots. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Man, it's powerful. Well, so Peter goes on and says, it's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. That's from Psalm 69. And let another take his office. That's from Psalm 109. And these are just Psalms, I won't go through them right now, where enemies of God were ultimately judged. They ultimately came to judgment. In other words, here it happened to Judas, but folks, all of us are facing the judgment. If you're in Christ, you're going to miss, and thankfully so, and praise the Lord so, the great white throne judgment. We don't want to be there. But also, for a Christian, we're going to get judged, folks, not by, for our salvation. We're going to get judged about what we did with what he gave us. The Bema Seat judgment. What are you doing? What am I doing with what God gave us? Finally, or keep going. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us, verse 21, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, there's a big debate in the Christian world about who Peter picked here, Peter and the apostles. Was it appropriate to pick Matthias or this other guy, Barsabbas, Joseph called Barsabbas, was it appropriate to pick these two and put them up as apostles? And one of the things we learn here, in order to be an apostle, listen, write it down. There's a lot of people going around in the Christian world saying, I'm an apostle. Here they give the definition. The definition of an apostle is one who knew the life of Christ, but for sure saw him in his resurrected state. Which means Paul, who came later, could be called an apostle. Why? Because the Bible tells us in Galatians that the Lord took Paul into Arabia and taught him for a couple years. That's what it says. So Paul could be an apostle. And there's a big debate in the Christian world. I'm going to let you be a brilliant about this. Did Peter get ahead of himself and act in an impatient way, in a carnal way, by only putting up two? Why would you put God in a box? It's funny. Somebody said no over here and yes over here. <laughs> because many on this side of the aisle believe it was a mistake to do that just to keep praying and waiting on the Lord and that Paul will ultimately be the 12th apostle why does it matter because here's why it matters in heaven the Bible tells us that there's going to be 12 pillars or foundations and each one is going to have the name of the apostles so there's this big debate who's going to be the 12th apostle I'll let you decide as you study as we go forward though look at this uh, 
And they prayed and said, look, they prayed again and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take a part in this ministry and apostleship. Here it comes. I'm going to get all kinds of questions about this. From which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. So they prayed about it. And they, then they did the only rational thing that one can do. They cast lots. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they cast lots. And that shouldn't bother you, folks. It shouldn't bother you. In the Old Testament, they did it a lot. You can find all kinds of uh, examples in the Old Testament, never in the New Testament, except here, in the Old Testament of them casting lots. There's actually one proverb that says, I, I always laugh when I say this verse because then I think somebody's going to try and go and justify gambling, but whatever. In Proverbs 16.33, it, it actually says that the Lord knows every roll of the dice or the lots. So that's not even outside of his sovereignty. But don't go out and gamble your money away. <laughs> but anyway, they cast lots. Remember, the priests had these stones that they did, one, many people believe one was a white stone, one was a black stone. They had a little bag, and when they had to make big decisions around the temple, they would pray and then pull out a stone. And one would be yes, and one would be no. I can't say it very well. Somebody say it for me. There you go. Uman, Erman, Thurman, you got it. You can be a, a Berean, but look at this. Matthias is picked. Is that the right uh, pick? Not the right pick. I'll let you decide. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. There it is again. What were they doing? They were being obedient. Are you being obedient in your life for Jesus Christ? They were. They just waited. You imagine how hard it must have been to wait. We're going to get power. We're going to get power. One day. I mean, can you imagine going one day? He told us to wait. We're waiting. Us, us Americans would never have made the 10th day. Remember, it had to be 10 days because you're going to see it came uh, uh, to pass on Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. How do I know that? Pentecost is a feast that's basically 50 days after the Passover. Jesus was... crucified during the Passover. Pentecost means 50. It's one of the three major feasts in which males had to come back into the city. And it was a good time of the year, nice weather. They were celebrating the winter harvest, which means it was going into good weather. And that's what's happening right now. People are in Jerusalem. It's packed. If you've been to Jerusalem, you'd go, wow, because Jerusalem is small, the old city. And it was packed. And people are there and they're celebrating. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there come from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon them, or each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As of a rushing mighty wind, it filled the whole house. Remember, they were sitting. I want you to see something here. Uh, remember, I said there are two camps. We'll close. We're going to have to close before we get to tongues. I do that on purpose so you'll come back. But anyway, here's the thing. 
There's a camp over here that all goes, everything goes. There's a camp over here that says, I don't want you to talk about the Holy Spirit in church. I'm afraid it's, abu- it's been abused. To the people in this camp, I want you to see something right now. They weren't running up and down the aisles, and I'm not making fun. They weren't laying on their faces, not making fun. They weren't shouting. They weren't being loud. They were merely praying and sitting in their seat when the Holy Spirit came upon them. You don't have to gyrate. Not, I, you think I'm making fun. I'm not making fun. I'm saying you don't have to conjure this up. That's what I'm trying to say. The gifts of the Spirit are gentle because we know when the Holy Spirit came, and the Bible says in Luke, he came in bodily form, read it, like a dove. I don't know about you, but a dove isn't really wild. It's peaceful. It means peace. Anyway, they're sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues of his fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterances, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father has been fulfilled on Pentecost. The promise of Joel that we're going to see here in a minute, fulfilled on Pentecost. And the church is born and alive. And a church couldn't do what the church was called to do unless they had the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the point that the writer's trying to make here. And there, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. If you come next week, no kidding, I'm goofing around a little bit, but I'm not goofing about around now. If you come next week, we're going to go through why we believe the gifts are for today. And we're going to believe why we believe even tongues are for today. And we're going to explain this in detail. But for now, we're just going to read it. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, aren't all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, however you say it, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, And if I, listen, 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 listen. If there was one thing you knew about spiritual gifts and the speaking of tongues, if I could just tell you one thing, I would tell you this next verse and this verse only about speaking in tongues from a person who believes that the gifts continue for today. And here's what I would tell you. If you're being intellectually honest and reading this for the first time, you would say that the reason gifts were given, or excuse me, the reason gifts were exercised here in chapter one, if you're being intellectually honest, you would say that tongues here in chapter one was to praise God. And you're saying, why is he making a big deal about that? Because I want you to see that these tongues were not, just read it, for evangelism. All you have to do is read, and I'm not making fun. You read, look at this, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. What do we hear them speaking? The wonderful works of God. What do you do when you praise God? What do you do when you pray to God? You say and share with God his wonderful works. What are tongues ultimately 
for praising God. You're saying, why is he making a big deal about that? Well, because I could possibly speak in a tongue. Dave Dennis right there say, Dave wouldn't do this. I'll pick Jan. Jan say, (laughs) Jan say, oh, you know what the interpretation of that tongue is? Livia, I want you to stop watching Law and Order. That's what the Lord gave me. I want you to stop Law and Order. All of you would immediately know that's not a valid tongue, nor a valid interpretation, and here's why. Because it wasn't directed towards God. Okay. That's the basis for what we're going to talk about. I want you to see one other thing, and then we close. Peter gives a sermon. And at the end of this sermon, right here in Acts chapter 2, verse 14... At the end of this sermon, it says that 3,000 people got saved and became a part of the church. Are you with me? And we'll close with this. In Exodus 32, the rabbis would teach that the reason we celebrate Pentecost was to celebrate the giving of the law. Not us, back then. (laughs) We're going to celebrate the giving of the law. I want you to see something in Exodus 32. If you'll turn there, we'll quit, and we'll give the Sunday school teachers a break. In Exodus 32, do you know what happened in Exodus 32? Uh... In Exodus 32, the golden calf happens. They're coming down from the giving of the law, Aaron and Moses, and you're like, what What are you people doing? You're dancing around a golden calf naked having an orgy. What is happening here? That's what they were doing. And it says, look at this, God got angry and he asked the Levites to go out and do something for him, strike down people, and look at this, about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000 people killed on the day of the giving of the law. So when you read 2 Corinthians 3, New Testament, I want you to remember this and we'll go forward and pray. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law, great thing, holy, points us to a Savior, but gives us no resource or ability to live up to the law. God's grace, we've celebrated it today. The end of the law is death. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life, died, took on our sin. Now we who trust in Him get His righteousness. Watch this. The law kills, the Spirit gives life. And as we go out of here today, I want you to remember something. You serve a God who is on mission. It's what he's all about. You serve a God who's on mission. It's what he's all about. He's given you his mission, which is to go and share the love and light of Christ. At the same time, he builds you up in your personal walk with him. He sends you out to share with others. Isn't that great? And he says, I want you to do it in the power with dynamite. 
the power of the Holy Spirit. I want torrents of living water to flow out of you. So what I'm saying is, as they say no, because I've gone too long, what I'm saying is, if you've never had the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the overflow of the Holy Spirit, Luke, Luke 11 says, just ask. <laughs> just ask. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I didn't see fireworks. I just took it by faith. It's the same thing with this. You may or may not see fireworks. I don't know. The Lord can do it. But maybe you won't, but you, you, you take by faith that the Lord's going to give you power for service. What propelled the church to the place we are today? The power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, and we ask, Lord, that you'd bless anyone here who wants to receive the overflow, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in which he has more of us as we give ourselves to him, and he gives us power and resource for ministry. Lord, we're tired of doing ministry in our own strength. We need your power. We need your person. We need your work. We need your resource. We need your life. In Jesus' name. Everybody says, amen.